Well, welcome to Elijah. Hey. 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 <laughs> so, a month or so ago, Rob asked me to preach. He said, well, do you want to preach during Lent? And I said, oh, Rob, I, I can't preach. Do I have an amen? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, Rob, whenever. And so we picked a date. And lo and behold, it came up, John 4, the woman at the well, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I think one of the most profound stories in all of the Gospels. So today, I want to go through it, and I'm not going to read the entire story for you, but uh, you'll see on the screen the Scripture uh, as we begin, and I'll go through and make comments on, on the, the verses as we grow through. So let us pause and invite God's presence as the word is read and proclaimed. Loving and gracious God, we come before you as people ready to receive the living water that you have for us. And may these words in scripture come alive and feed our parched and dusty souls that we might then be servants of yours giving the living water to our world. This is your time to move our hearts and minds, and we thank you for it. In Christ our Lord's name. Amen. So, the scripture begins. Uh, we're reading John 4, uh, chapter, uh, verse 4 through verse 30. You won't see 30 on the screen. I'm just going to comment on that. But we begin with verse 4, and it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. <laughs> the Ruth, north and south from Judah to, uh, to Galilee, did go right through Samaria, the little dinky province in Israel of Samaria. But most Jews would take a day or a day and a half, two days, to walk around it. So he could have gone around it, but the text says Jesus had to go through Samaria, meaning that there was a compulsion. Something was driving him, something was, was calling him to go to this province of Samaria. And we know that it was the Spirit of God compelling him to go to Samaria. In the verse 5 and 6, he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Remember, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. Jacob was kind of a sketchy, not, not kind of, a very sketchy person, but one of the patriarchs. And he apparently was responsible for the well in this little town of Sychar in Samaria. And then it continues, he uh, gave it to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey and he sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, this passage of scripture, this story is very interesting simply as a story. But there's all kinds of intricacies within the story that I want to open up for you and, and elucidate. And it, it begins right here. There is a portrait that John is painting of Jesus. And when we're through with this passage of scripture, we should have a complete portrait of Jesus. So John begins with heavy charcoal drawings, drawing the outlines of this portrait of Jesus. And this is where it begins. He was tired from his journey. Jesus was human, as we are human. He got tired 
as we get tired. He suffered all of the indignities, all of the, the weaknesses of the flesh that we suffer. He was tired. He sat down beside the well. And then verse 7, the Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. Now, Jesus apparently doesn't know the social protocol that's involved here, but the woman does, and she doesn't let him get away with it. Because she says, uh, verse 9, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And you'll notice, and I don't know if it's in this text or not, um, yep, you see the parentheses of verse 9? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. The translators put the parentheses in. That wasn't in the original text. And that's an editorial comment from John, the writer of the story, to explain. Because remember, John is writing to Greeks, to Gentiles. And they would not know the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And so he puts the editorial comment there. But she asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask something? Now, what's wrong with that? Why he should not be talking to her is because he's a rabbi. Rabbis are not to talk to women in public. And a well is a very public place where everybody has to come for water. But the more important thing is, notice she is a, why do you talk to me, a Jewish, I mean a Samaritan woman. <coughs> the Samaritan is the cat. There is great prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans that started back in the 8th century B.C., 722 B.C., when the Assyrian hordes came into the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed the principal cities, carried some of the people into exile to Assyria, but left an occupation force in, Assyria, in um, Samaria. And over time, then the Samaritan people intermarried with the Assyrian occupation force. And then they decided, well, we don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship on the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We have a very sacred mountain called Mount Gerizim. We'll build a temple there. And that was bad enough. But then, after the Babylonian exiles, when, the, when Judah is taken into a, a captivity, in Babylon, in about 40 years, they return to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They go to the Samaritans and say, listen, we can't do this by ourselves. We need your help, but you help us. And the Samaritans said, no. So for the next 500 years, there's great prejudice. The Jews thought the Samaritans were half-breeds. Not only that, they were heretics because they worshipped on this Mount Gerizim and not the only place where God lived in the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were like, they were treated like lepers. They are to be avoided. And as I said, if you were a Jew going to the north, to Galilee, you would walk around Samaria an extra day and a half, two days, simply to avoid interaction with the Samaritans. They were outcasts to the Jews. In fact, the Jews considered them to be one degree better than a Gentile. That's all. <laughs> so the woman says, why are you talking to me, a woman? And by the way, with a questionable reputation that we'll see in a moment, and a Samaritan. 
the social protocols would say he cannot and should not and would not talk to her. But you see, as John is painting this portrait of Jesus, we see that Jesus doesn't live by the strictures of the society. If there is someone in need, an outcast, someone on the margins of society, Jesus is there to help them, to give them a hand up, to care for them. And then in verse 10, Jesus responds, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. That's the first time that's mentioned in the text. It, it will come back. But notice what Jesus says. If you recognize God's gift, he is calling himself the very gift of God. You would know that he would give you living water. Moving on to verse 11 and 12. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, in fact, is what this text is teaching us is indeed he is greater than Jacob. He gave us this well and he drank from it himself and as this is his sons and livestock. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become, in those who drink it, a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The characters in the Gospel of John, John presents them as people that are on one plane, the op not the opposite, but a different plane from Jesus, as though they're on the same path to Jesus, but they're going in different directions. Remember Nicodemus? Last week, he didn't understand when Jesus said, you must be born from above. He said, well, how can I enter my mother's womb again? Like, he doesn't get it. And the woman here doesn't get it. Jesus is not on the material realm. He's not on the physical. He's talking about a spiritual reality, living water that feeds us at the very depth of our dry and dusty souls. Living water that no matter the circumstances of life continues to bubble up and refresh us and enable us to refresh others. The living water. It's what gives us meaning. It's what forms the purpose of our life. It gives us hope. And whatever the circumstances we have that well within us that can let, enable us to continue to be people of hope. To be, as Paul said, we live not as people who are without hope. We live in hope. I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate living water for you. And what I came up with was the Okavanga Delta in Botswana. That's probably what you were thinking, right? <laughs> Right, okay. Well, the Okabunga Delta is in Botswana. For those who are Americans and are challenged geographically, which is all Americans, if you look at a map of South Africa, the very bottom country is what? South, South Africa. Africa. Just north of South Africa is Botswana. By the way, one of the prosperous uh, countries that feeds itself. 
And in the northern part of Botswana is a part of the Kalahari Desert, a very harsh, arid region. But there's the Okavango River that flows into the Kalahari Desert. And because the Kalahari Desert is flat, it spreads into channels and, and goes over thousands of square miles. And if you see the Okavango Delta, you'll see its rich, rich, lush, green vegetation. And it comes from mountains a thousand miles north, where it rains, and the rains gather together in the Okavango River and flow into the Delta. Now, I have a video for you, but I decided the sermon is too long, so I need to show it later. So after worship, if you want to see this little National Geographic video that give you a real sense of the Okavango Delta, then we'll, we'll watch it. But anyway, so the waters come, and, and they flow, and, and it floods this great plain. And all of the African animals are there in mass. But what the, what the video doesn't show you is that every so many years, there's a drought, just like we've had for the last five years. And the Okavango River dries up. And the animals then have to leave and go hundreds of miles away to find water and grass and food. And if they can make it back, then when the drought is over, they'll be back where they lived previously. But many of them never make it. But the other thing that feeds the Okavanga Delta is that it is on, uh, the Kalahari Desert is on one of the greatest underground lakes in all of Africa. And when the rains come and begin to refill the lake, it bubbles up in springs, thousands of springs throughout the land. And there's reeds growing, and the reeds filter the water so there's this crystal clear, pure water that's flowing. And as I think of the Okavanga Delta, I think that's the living, that's like the living water that Jesus gives us. It comes from rain from mountains a thousand miles north and flows in, into the Okavanga Delta. The living water is not something we produce. It's not something we achieve or we earn. It's not something that, that we're good enough to have. It is a gift of God to us. It comes from outside of us, into us, and by the Spirit of God, it refreshes our souls and enables us then to be the people of God. And Jesus says that I, the water I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. And then the woman responds to him in verse 15. Sir, give me this water. So I'll never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water again. She does want this water. But she wants it as a labor-saving device. <laughs> she doesn't want to have to keep coming back to the well. Think about it. She's got to carry a day's water in a clay jar. And as you know, one gallon of water weighs eight pounds. And so she would rather not come back and carry a heavy clay jar filled with water back to her home maybe once, twice a day. So she says, I'd like to have it, give it to me. Well, this is a real conversation. And the reason I know it's a real conversation is because it morphs and changes. Have you ever mapped your conversations and gone back and said, now wait a minute, we started with, um, 
you know, your, your family, talking about your family. How did we get over here talking about the Pacific Trade Agreement? <laughs> <laughs> and you map it, and you see that it morphs kind of, kind of like swallows in the evening that are after bugs and they're dipping and twirling and, and changing their directions. That's what conversations do. And right here in verse 16, Jesus changes the subject. They're talking about living water, and he says, Hey, go get your husband and come back. <laughs> All right. And the woman replies, I have no husband. To which Jesus says, You're right. He said, uh, You've had five husbands. The one you are with isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. Now imagine, you're in Starbucks. <laughs> And you've just ordered your chai latte and a lemon twist. <laughs> and you're looking for seat. People are milling around and people are hovering over the chairs, waiting for somebody to get up so they can pounce on it and have a chair, right? Yep. You get your chai and you spot a chair that's vacant. You, you make a beeline for it. You go to that chair and there's a man sitting at a table and you say, you mind if I sit here? He says, oh, by all means. And you look at him and you think, he's a tad sketchy. But it's the only scene. <laughs> so you sit down. And the first thing he says to you is, hey, tell me about your family. And you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm married. He says, no, you're not. <laughs> you go, whoa, wait a minute. This is getting a little too personal. This is a little too close for me. But the man seems genuine, he seems kind, he doesn't seem judgmental, and you say, well, what do you mean? I don't have a husband. He said, listen, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. You would say, whoa, this is not a, a microaggression, this is a macroaggression, and I need a safe place. <coughs> so, what would you do? Tell you what I would do. I'd change the subject. <laughs> and that's exactly what the woman does. She changes the subject. And she says, Sir, I see it, you're a prophet. Now, let's give her the benefit of doubt. I think she's serious. But it could be she simply wants to flatter. Right? It's like the old story of this kind old uh, southern gentleman talking to a lady and he says, uh, says, Well, you're a beautiful lady. And she's, Oh. <coughs> You can't flatter me. And he says, yep, he says, you're the one who can't be flattered. <laughs> what did he just do? He just flattered her. <laughs> right? So she flattered Jesus by saying, hey, I see that you're a prophet. And he says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, here in, in Samaria. And your people say it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. And then Jesus responds, believe me. And see how they're on different tracks again? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. A little hint. A little more color goes on in the portrait that John is painting. Because Jesus is saying, salvation comes from the Jews. And he's beginning to point to himself again. But the time is coming and is here 
when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship him in this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> Jesus is saying that there is to be balanced worship. And it's not about a place. It's about a person. You can worship in St. Paul and St. Peter's in Rome. Or you can worship in a storefront uh, industrial park in Westlake Village on Townsgate in a room that has a disco ball. <laughs> it's not about the place. It's about the person. And Jesus is pointing to himself as the object of worship. He says you must worship in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. And our spirits then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, communal, when we have this living water, communicate with God. But it's not just about a feeling level. It is about the heart. And I trust and I believe that here at Lightshine, we have balanced worship in that. We have worship that moves us emotionally. I hope you feel that when we sing, when we, when we do the liturgy, that you're not just in your head, but you're feeling it in your heart. But it's not just feelings. It's also about the intellect. Christianity is one of the few religions that's based on historic truth. You can trace and find ancient literatures, that is, ancient literature that's written by non Jews or non-Christians that point to the truth of Jesus Christ living in Rome in, in the Roman Empire in 1st, 2nd, 3rd century A.D. And our faith is based on historic fact. So God wants us to use our minds to know and to remember and to think and so our worship must be done in spirit. It must be infused with the spirit of God that touches us in the depths of our beings. But it also must be done with our minds. In spirit and in truth. And Jesus says, or she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. The one who is called the Christ. When he comes he will teach us everything. And here's the climax. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks to you. She just said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one, the Christ. Christ means the Messiah, the anointed. When he comes, he will teach us everything. And he says, I am he. Jesus uses the divine name, I am. You remember when Moses was in the desert and he saw this bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed? And he thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and he looks at the bush and God begins to speak to him out of that bush. Now remember why Moses was there. He slayed an Egyptian prince and fled to the desert. There he married, had children, raised sheep, and he's still living there. And God comes to him with this burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, knowing that he's going to have to give an answer to when people say, well, who sent you? 
He says, well, who shall I say sent me? Because if he goes back and the Hebrew people are saying, wait a minute, aren't you Moses, the guy who killed the prince, and then you fled, you left us here in our slavery, you didn't help us, but you went to the desert to save your own skin? And then what if he goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, so who sent you? By what authority should I let you go? And God says, I am who I am. Now, the English translation of that ancient Hebrew doesn't mean much to us, but that is the name of God. And what it means is, I am the true and living one. I am the one who truly exists and are here and present with you. I am. For four chapters, from chapter 4 in John to chapter 11. That's maybe five chapters. Whatever. Uh, Jesus, John begins a series of I am passages where Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. All using the divine name I am, taking upon himself the prerogatives of God and what he's saying is, I am God. The Hebrews found that I am so sacred that they would never say it. What they did is they made another word out of it. They took the vowels for Adonai, which is a description of God, it's not a name of God. They took the vowels and put them with the yod Hey vav Hey, which are the four letters of I am who I am, yod Hey vav Hey. Notice I do it from right to left. yod Hey vav Hey. It's because Hebrew reads from right to left. And so they took that, put the vowels in, and it became Yahweh, or Jehovah, depending on, on the vowels that you put in. And that's the word they would use for God. But Jesus takes this divine name, that even the Hebrews could not say and applies it to himself. I am the divine name, he, the Messiah who stands before you. Now the amazing thing is how the story ends. We can end the story there. But it's very important because the woman goes back to her town, Sychar, and she tells the people in her village, come and meet a man that's told me everything I've ever done. And they go and meet him. And they become followers of Jesus. And here's what they said. Many more believe because of his word. And then they say, we no longer believe because of what you said, speaking to the woman, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. They discovered the living water in Jesus. The woman discovered the living water in Jesus and that water poured through her to others. The portrait of Jesus is complete. He is human. He was thirsty, he was hungry, 
and takes the divine name, saying, I am he, the Messiah, the one that you look and long and hope for. And that person, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, is the one who dispenses to us the living water that refreshes us at the very depths of our dusty souls. But it doesn't stop there. Because of this living water, it flows to us, through us, to all in need, to those on the margins of society, to those who are the outcasts, to all people. So friends, the living water is here, available for you. Whether you feel like you're in a place of lacking hope or you have great hope, the living water still comes to us. 